Well, thank you, uh, Christine, and thank you, Ingrid. That uh, the title of that piece that you did has a kind of a double memory, a double meaning, and it will uh, certainly relate to my uh, message for this morning. Well, what remains after the death of a loved one? And what is it that is passed on from one life to another? A poem titled Not Even Death by Margaret Jane Cole suggests one answer. And interestingly, I can't tell from this poem if the author herself is near death or whether it is the loved one to whom she is addressing the poem that is near death. Actually, I think it, it works both ways, but Here's the poem, which you'll be able to follow on the screen. Not Even Death by Margaret Jane Cole. There will be something here, some part of this left over past our final soft caress, a breeze at twilight carrying a kiss, the fragrance of a petaled loveliness that we have known. Some little shining edge of ecstasy on beauty's golden dart. And we will stand beside the jasmine hedge again. And love will spring from heart to heart. For memory will keep what it has heard. Forever etched upon the heart's own seed. And time, time shall not erase one tender word that love has written down for future need. Oh, dearest. Hold this knowledge and be glad. Not even death destroys what love has had. This tender, touching poem suggests that the heart is like a storehouse where seeds of memory are kept and preserved. And the image that comes to my mind is that of a pomegranate fruit with its multitude of gem-like crimson-colored seeds each seed having a tender memory of love etched upon it, a little packet of information that at the appropriate time will germinate, sprout, take root, grow, blossom, and bear fruit. Curiously, these seeds of memory in the storehouse of our heart are not necessarily known to us at the time. For seeds, of course, are often tiny little things, so tiny you don't even know they're adhering to you, as when, for example, you walk through a field of grasses and wild flowers or through the woods, and, and the seeds from the various plants, unbeknownst to you, stick to your clothing, attach themselves to the hair of your head, gather in the cuffs of your pants, and all without your awareness. You, you don't even know that you are collecting them, carrying them, and scattering them. So too, little seeds of memory stick to us unobtrusively, unbeknownst to ourselves or to those from whom we are receiving these memories. In one of his many poems, the poet Robert Bly, who died uh, just this past year, uh, Bly says that each day, each day we are asked to remember one or two things, just one or two things each day as we go through life. These are things that our parents aren't aware we are remembering, things that aren't by any means the national news of the day, and things that often we ourselves are not aware that we are remembering. We don't know and can't control why we remember what we remember. But apparently something in us 
wants to or needs to remember something in us. Our heart, let us say, wants and needs to remember. Our heart, a symbol of our deepest emotional self, our heart wants and needs to collect these memories and store them for future reference and need. And our soul, a symbol of our deepest interior self and of that which most essentially belongs to us, our soul also wants and needs to gather and collect memories that will be useful for it in the future. And we, in our conscious selves, don't even know why at the time. Maybe later we will learn why these seeds of memory adhered to us. Maybe later we will learn why the heart and the soul collected, gathered, and stored the particular memories they did. But at the time, we really don't know why we are gathering, what we are gathering, or why. Do you know why you remember what you remember? Many of you tuned in today have had many years of gathering memories. But have you figured out why the particular seeds of memory that have adhered to you have done so? Why do the heart and the soul gather the memories that they do? These are memories that are often, even usually, utterly strange, odd little things with no apparent rhyme or reason to them. It's not a rational thing, nor an intellectual thing. The things we remember, as Robert Bly suggests, are not what our parents would think we might remember. And, of course, often they just assume we wouldn't remember what we do remember. While the things they wanted to teach us are often completely forgotten. Here's a little example of the oddness of memory, and it comes from a memorial service that I officiated some years ago. In the part of the service where we were gathering and sharing memories, a granddaughter of the deceased woman stood to speak about her dear departed grandmother. I have the oddest little memory of my grandmother, the woman said. I remember that when she was eating, and nearly all the food on the plate was gone, she would use her little finger to pick up the crumbs from the plate. Then she would put her little finger to her mouth and eat those crumbs. And in this way, she cleaned her plate. The granddaughter continued, I don't know why I remember that, but I do. And now I find myself doing the very same thing. When I'm about finished eating, I pick up the crumbs from my plate with my little finger, and I put them to my mouth. And when I do, I think of Grandma. Crumbs on the plate. Little crumbs of no apparent account. And yet these crumbs are the seeds of memory. What is imparted to us is not usually what others have tried to impart to us. And actually what others try to impart to us is often remembered, if at all, only negatively. What is most useful, it seems, are seeds of memory 
that we don't even know we are receiving and which others don't even know that they are giving. What is remembered by us is that which has heart stuff attached to it or soul stuff, something that our heart is pulled by or something that our soul takes note of. So what do the heart and the soul like to remember? The heart, that which relates to our deepest emotional being, likes the following things, I think. Connection, care, concern, and courtesy. And also this, kindness, gentleness, tenderness, and modesty. In other words, the heart likes what it itself is. And the soul, that essential, unoriginated fire of which we are a part, what does it like? The soul likes the following, I think. Reality, vitality, authenticity, and spontaneity. In other words, the soul likes what it itself is. And so the heart and the soul, usually without our conscious knowledge, gather, collect, store, and preserve seeds of memory so that they themselves might be nourished. And this may give us a clue as to how we should live our own lives and what it is that we give or have given to others. For we truly give to others when we give of ourselves naturally, spontaneously, lovingly, and without necessarily the shaping of forethought, forethought and certainly not the shaping by manipulation. We have to let go. We have to let our heart bubble over. We have to let our soul have its play. Who has dropped seeds of memory into your heart or into your soul? Reading Bill Moyer's interviews with American poets a number of years ago, I was struck by an interview with a contemporary American poet of Chinese descent by the name of Li Young Li, a poet I heard speak a few years ago in Seattle. Li Young Li's father, as his son describes him, was a brilliant man of huge intellectual and artistic talents, also a wild and exuberant man, a scholarly man with a command of seven languages, an entrepreneur who could make money and as easily let it go, and a man who later became a Christian evangelist and then finally a Presbyterian minister. And he was a forbidding presence of a man, a person who felt he needed to give an appearance of strength, an individual who could not allow doubt into his public or even his private conversation. And he was a demanding man to his children with very high standards. He was the template by which his sons and daughters were to measure their lives. But what was remembered of this man? No doubt all of this had gone into his children in some way or another. But what his son, Lee Young Lee, remembers and appreciates was the opportunity to read his father's Bible after his father's death. And what did Lee Young Lee find there in his father's Bible? 
He found notations in the margins of his father's Bible, notations related to questions and doubts his father had. Questions and doubts his son had not known his father entertained because his father had never expressed them to his son or perhaps to anyone else. So in his father's Bible, in the margins of his father's Bible, at the edge of his father's outward life and character, Lee Young Lee saw a father in conversation with the sacred writings. And he saw for the first time a father in search, in doubt, and in need. For the first time, in other words, he saw a human father. And what a gift this was for his searching son. And how thankful his son was for this gift, these, these seeds of memory. His father didn't even know he was passing on to his son. Seeds of memory dropped in the margins of the sacred writings, not in the sacred, not in the sacred text itself, not in what was standard and expected, not in the holy words, but off to the side, in the margins, at the edge, scribbled, some no doubt illegible. These were the seeds, tiny, apparently insignificant, scattered seeds, not expected to be seen or found or used. These were the seeds that his son valued the most and found the most useful. Lee Young Lee's father was human in other ways as well, and he planted other seeds of memory, gave his son other gifts that the poet didn't know he was receiving at the time, nor did his father know that these were the seeds he was planting or the gifts that he was giving. One day in his adulthood, Lee Young Lee, now married, was carefully and tenderly removing a splinter from under the thumbnail of his wife's right hand. When it dawned on him where his capacity to so tenderly attend to her in this way had come from, Lee Young Lee wrote about this discovery in a poem titled The Gift. And let me introduce this poem to you with the poet's own comment about the precipitating event and experience that lay behind this poem. In his interview with Bill Moyers, Lee Young Lee said, I was with my wife in a hotel and I woke up and heard her sobbing. I looked for her and she was sitting on the edge of the bathtub sobbing and holding her hand. I noticed that her hand was bleeding. And when I looked, there was a splinter under her thumbnail. My father was dead at the time, but when I bent down to remove the splinter, I realized that I had learned that tenderness from my father. Here's the poem titled, The Gift. To pull the metal splinter from my palm, my father recited a story in a low voice. I watched his lovely face, and not the blade. Before the story ended, he'd removed the iron sliver I thought I'd die from. I can't remember the tale, but hear his voice still, a well of dark water, a prayer. 
And I recall his hands, two measures of tenderness he laid against my face. The flames of discipline he raised above my head. Had you entered that afternoon, you would have thought you saw a man planting something in a boy's palm, a silver tear, a tiny flame. Had you followed that boy, you would have arrived here, where I bend over my wife's right hand. Look how I shave her thumbnail down so carefully. She feels no pain. Watch as I lift the splinter out. I was seven when my father took my hand like this. And I did not hold that shard between my fingers and think metal that will bury me, christen it little assassin, or going deep for my heart. And I did not lift up my wound and cry, death visited here. No, I did what a child does when he's given something to keep. I kissed my father. To conclude 